Welcome to Series 2 of Assembly Point, a monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. Following a successful first series, Assembly Point provides a collective space in which industry leaders can explore the most pressing issues in fire safety and share expert information and advice. Please be aware that the views expressed by guests in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the FPA. We hope you enjoy this episode of Assembly Point. Hello, everybody, and, and welcome to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast. I'm Chris Miles, Commercial Director at the Fire Protection Association. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Evans, CEO and Chairman of Ash and Lacey, a manufacturer of a diverse and innovative range of engineered facades and, and roofing systems tailored to the architectural sector, amongst others. Uh, Jonathan's been a keen advocate of raising the bar on, on quality within the construction sector. And um, we're also joined by Professor Jim Glocklin, who uh, no doubt will be familiar to, to our listeners as a former director at, uh, at the FPA. Today, our intention is to, to discuss raising standards and understanding when it comes to innovation in construction and how it impacts on fire safety. So uh, let, let's kick off then. Very recently, we, we had the FIRE Conference uh, 2022, obviously, uh, in London, w- which saw the launch of the FIRE Sector Federation's white paper on developing a, a national strategy for fire safety, which um, has been absent for, for some time now, um, and, and seeks to create a holistic approach to effectively managing fire risk and, and to hopefully to achieve a sustainable and, and safer society. Um, I wanted to start off with with asking the question on why it's taken us until now, five years post Grenfell, to get this point in, uh, and and to address the current gaps in fire safety for the for the built environment. And in in both your views, does the development and implementation of this strategy uh, fall to government, or should industry be taking the lead? Let's start with with Jim. Oh, thank you, Chris. It's a, a very good question. Um, I think the easiest one to answer first is the um, the second part. I mean, the clues in the name, National Fire Strategy for Fire Safety. It's the responsibility of government, and it always has been. I think every com- every country has um, a responsibility, obviously, to protect its people, business and property, uh, protection of the public purse, and do it in a way that uh, can adapt to change and undergoes regular review. Uh, but sadly, we've never really... Uh, had that uh, for the UK, or certainly in England and Wales. And it's very welcome that the Fire Sector Federation has sort of stepped in with this document, uh, quite commendably, uh, to put something on the table for consideration. I think the history of the Fire Sector Federation, that it was formed following the Fire Futures Review and was launched by uh, Bob Neill, MP. Um, I hope going forward that it gets treated as a, a very valuable asset to government in setting a confirmed national strategy uh, going forward. Um, so I think I think in there it's government's responsibility. I see the fact that others need to step in to respond and fill a void is um, commendable, but not really acceptable going forward. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Jonathan, any any thoughts on from your side from the from the manufacturer stroke installer side? Yeah, very much so. I, I totally agree with Jim. I think um, the idea or notion that any industry can self-regulate 
when it comes to such important societal societal issues such as safety um, is is uh, wishful thinking and it's not just construction that has demonstrated repeatedly that self-regulation doesn't work we've seen it in aerospace and automotive and so on so I'm I've been saying for a long time that I don't think that the construction industry is unique in the fact that there are people that wish to cut corners and uh, break regulations uh, one of my well, my pet interests and hobbies is reading about corporate history. Um, and if you if you do your research on the behavior of major corporations, you'll you'll spot a tendency for them to pay the price of being caught for breaking regulations rather than follow them in order to uh, make more profit. Um, in terms of why it's taken so long to get here, um, I think the controversial opinion, but now that the uh, the majority of the Grenfell inquiry has has reached its conclusions for its hearings, you have to accept that there's a problem, whether it's personally in business or whatever, um, to be able to make change and drive improvements. And obviously the immediate natural reaction of the government after the Grenfell fire was to blame industry. Um, the government tried to initially claim that the ACM that was used on Grenfell should have been prohibited by, by the wording of the filler material with the approved document B. And when that all kind of unraveled in the Grenfell inquiry, when uh, Brian Martin admitted that was intended to cover something else, they've now resorted to the functional requirements. Now, and this, and this really brings you to the, the crux of the problem is that yes, it is government's responsibility to set out um, the, the fire regulations and enforce them, but nobody really wants to do that. It's a complicated task. Um, technology and innovation um, somewhat makes that challenge even harder. So the functional regulations suit the government very nicely because they basically, it's just, they're really not regulations at all. They're just statements of common, of the common sense and the obvious, which is basically don't build buildings that kill people. But the approved documents are supposed to manifest the way that all the experts that they've, they've harvested the opinions of uh, think that you should go about doing that. Yes. I, I think the other feature there, Chris, is that uh, government... Uh, the, the, the government objective is quite a, a low and grey bar of really life safety. And um, so everything we have um, the, the, in fire law is is about timing. It's to ensure that um, buildings stay up for long enough for people to evacuate. And after that, there's nothing in legislation to ensure the survival of a building. And I think this is little understood and would need to be declared more fully so that people have... Uh, a greater awareness of the levels of protection that mandation actually delivers to them. Obviously, there are people out there with uh, who would like to see more um, evacuation before collapse saves lives, um, but obviously what, they may have nothing to go back to uh, at the end of it by way of a house or their apartment block. And obviously, there are people like insurers who would like to see things last longer as well. So I think you're uh, in your opening statement. You use the word holistic. And holistic does mean bringing in all players and it requires government to really broaden its remit to at least listen and understand that there are other viewpoints that um, uh, need supporting in an overall strategy. Uh, obviously, in from the government's perspective, if we see a weakness in the built environment, you might think the seesaw of balance would be a reinforcement of the responding services. But actually, I think we see things over the years being trimmed at both ends. So there's no seesaw being balanced. There seems to be erosion uh, of uh, fire protection in the built environment uh, and possibly from the fire and rescue services by way of reduced funding. Mm. It's, uh, it's interesting you, you talk about insurance and now I've joined the Fire Protection Association. I, I can see to a greater extent the involvement that the insurance bodies have 
in in fire safety and whilst it's great great what level they have so far i think there's absolutely more they could do and and perhaps something for a for a future podcast for us to explore with with some of the people in the in the risk authority um can, can i make a point though on this life safety issue because i i feel like i want a uh, one-man crusade um to try and clarify this in the absence of a review of the regulations themselves not necessarily the approved documents perhaps one thing that we could do is reinterpret um, the regulations. Um, and Jim just mentioned there that the, uh, the emphasis is very much on life safety. Uh, but I find that this is a self-perpetuating myth within everybody um, that's, that's dealing with this issue. And even um, government officials that you talk to, they'll use this phrase, but it doesn't actually exist anywhere in the regulations themselves. And um, what I would like to draw attention to, and I seem to be the only person that thinks that actually needs to be a, a redefinition of the regulations themselves, is Regulation 8 sets out which parts of the, the building regulations are meant to only be limited to the uh, protection of reasonable standards of health and safety. Now, the wording of that regulation, I think, can be reinterpreted in, in, the, in the light of Grenfell and so on, and the amount of uh, people that have had health problems associated with firefighters, for instance, have been impacted by toxic chemicals, um, the mental health of people who have survived these these um, events and so on and uh, been um, disrupted. Uh, we have this expression of not just being safe, but feeling safe in a building. And my argument is that if you put combustible materials on a building, there's no way people are going to feel safe, no matter what you uh, present to them in terms of classification and test reports and so on and expert opinion. So it's that regulation I think we need to draw attention to. And I don't think it needs, needs to be rewritten. I just think it needs to be reinterpreted that health and safety has a much bigger implication. So if the government came out and said, look, we need to make sure that our regulations and our fire regulations and so on protect the health and safety of everybody in the building and those impacted, and that includes the firefighters. So we have this situation now where the, um, uh, the firefighting profession, for instance, has been recognized as a carcinogenic uh, profession. The, the chemicals and the toxins that the firefighters have to deal with in the event of a fire now recognized um, to have an impact on their life expectancy and so on. So put it this way, the part of my reason for campaigning for non-combustible materials hasn't just been about fire spread. It's been about um, the fact that I, I see it as quite an effective way of eliminating toxic plastic, microplastic, all sorts of environmental and, and health issues. It's, a, it's um, an effective way of neatly eliminating some very hazardous materials from our buildings. I think, though, Jonathan, that to really kind of uh, have to weasel your way around the interpretation of rules in order to engage with government um, is something we need to get over. There are only certain categories you're allowed to engage with BRACON to improve the building regulations for fire, um, and business and property protection is, is not, they're not one of them. And when I've asked ministers in the past of, well, how can we get something more in, there is a heading of uh, convenience. And the example they gave, so if you felt that a shopping centre burning down would inconvenience the population, you might have grounds there to do something. But it's infuriating having to sort of, uh, as I say, you know, uh, find weasel arguments to engage on very serious matters and not just be able to address the issue. So so if I, if I could kind of sum up and kind of draw a line under that part of our discussion, um, I think you're both saying that the Fire Sector Federation white paper is valuable, is needed. It sounds like it's a first step, but that's all. There's a lot, lot more to do. Um, and you're both 
have the opin opinion that government should be taking the lead and should be implementing this. However, my big fear is that that won't happen. And if we wait for, for government to, to take the lead on it, I think we might continue waiting and waiting and, and waiting. And, and actually Dame Judith Hackett in summing up at the fire conference, I felt like I'd been slapped around the face, to be honest, by her, which we could tend to happen. She, she was very clear, look, this is what we've got. The Building Safety Act is there. Get your weight behind it. Not probably not going to get anything more, more than that. So sort it out industry. But I would disagree with that because there's a technical review approved document being going on at the moment. And the, for instance, I mean, I sit on the A414 BSI committee, um, as does Jim. Um, and one thing you get from the people that sit on those committees is um, an outright resistance to regulate or put anything in the test or classification standards that isn't regulated. Now, perception is changing, though. So the review of these test standards will in future include things like toxicity. And that's that's a really big deal, because if you at the webinar I gave um, available on YouTube um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, also talked about um, the wider scientific community looking into the toxicity of materials. And actually what we're talking about now about combustible materials and safety and so on uh, might be completely superseded by a bigger issue in the global um, health agenda about toxicity of materials, not just when they burn, but also when they're uh, ingested or they're floating around in the sea and so on. So hmm. um, a rephrasing of what health and safety means could drive changes in the standards. And as an industry, we participate in driving those standards. And we shouldn't be distracted by Dame Judith Hackett um, thinking that um, human nature is going to get us out of this situation. We should continue to push for change in this, at least in the classification standards and the tests that we think reflect what the industry needs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. I, I'm skeptical. That's perhaps the, the way to sum it up. I can't help but feel that that legislation in the UK is, continues to be re reactive and will continue to be reactive, and it, and it, and it's, it's not going to change massively until we get another disaster, unfortunately. And coming back to the topic of of innovation, we're importing new building techniques, um, but not necessarily at the right level of fire protection systems being included. And that, that can be a frustration and I can see, and so many people have, have said, you know, I can see um, modular buildings in particular, but not just kind of the, the next Grenfell happening. And please, I hope that doesn't come back to, to haunt me, but but I'm not the only one that's, that's saying it. Um, Jim, perhaps if we can move on to looking at that, so modern methods of construction, modular buildings and I know you've been looking at that that recently um, absolutely and um, <clears throat> I've written a substantial article basically uh, as you say I think modern I think um, certainly in the modular sector I think that is where the next cladding crisis may occur unless something is done to mitigate uh, the likelihood of that now I mean I think what's really needed is is, is honest research and an open consideration of the results before any policy is set often as not the Certainly some of the government research historically has really been put in place to support policy rather than find out what the policy should be. So when we look back at the history of maybe something like light timber framing, where a large series of uh, tests were, in done, were done with a view to importing really more American style techniques of construction 
to the UK, yes, they they supported the life safety role, but the um, they failed to divulge um, results from those tests that were absolutely critical to maybe homeowners and insurers to know that actually, yes, um, they are safe for a period appropriate for evacuation, but through fire spread through voids, they can then have disproportionate, uh, um, sustained disproportionate damage from periods thereafter. And um, it was, um, I've got to say, a rather grubby affair, not, not actually sort of declaring that. Now, um, <clears throat> this is, um, uh, so to have research rather like uh, the Red Wine Growers Association, you know, supporting projects to show that red wine is good for the heart, um, it's not really research, is it? it it's more, more marketing. But on the back of that, um, what was also ignored was whilst they wanted to import the um, a, a new construction technique, which is more sustainable um, and could be an answer to uh, the sort of uh, housing crisis that, that, that we have, what they failed to address was why the United States um, man had to, through experience over the years, put in lots of constraints on its use also. So actually, there's only uh, you know one category of building really that won't be sprinkler protected if you're building out of uh, light timber framing, and there's constraints on floor area without significant passive uh, protection. So it's almost like um, we imported maybe imported cars into the UK, but for some reason, because we're the UK, we feel we don't need the seat belts or the airbags, which is obviously ludicrous. But they went ahead and did it, and the enabler for that is our relatively weak building regulations which are just evacuation before collapse. Now, in many other countries, uh, building regulations, life safety follows good resilience of the building materials and the way, way you put it together. So we have an experience which is rather poor. Uh, we're heading into a space with many more techniques coming along, not least modular, um, <clears throat> which obviously um, introduces, uh, it, it could be considered a, a Buildings made of a, a close collection of voids formed of lightweight materials, often combustible, um, and obviously fire stopping there becomes a, a massive uh, issue. It becomes so highly dependent upon it. Um, it, it needs to be very fastidious. Um, and also with, with uh, massive timber as well, which it comes in a variety of forms, but needs consideration, particularly uh, to, to address the uh, newly introduced uh, combustible combustible components uh, into buildings. Now, um, at the moment, I think to do with uh, massive timber and uh, particularly large buildings, actually, actually the insurers are really taking the role of the regulator here because actually these buildings are currently really struggling to get insurance for some very, very good technical reasons. And really there needs to be a response so these get addressed. We must all support the sustainability agenda it's not about not allowing the use of wood. Wood is absolutely fundamental to meeting uh, a net zero um, carbon impact. Um, but we need to do it in a form without erosion uh, of overall resilience so that we have buildings that remain safe, can be built large, uh, are appropriately protecting the owner's investment and are insurable. Yeah, thanks, Jim. I wouldn't disagree with, with any of that. Um, Jonathan, I know Ash and Lacey have, have been at the forefront, but from my knowledge on the cladding <clears throat> perspective and in innovative and, and new designs. And uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts on, on 
the modern methods of construction, modular buildings in particular, but not just perhaps, and, and how we can maintain fire safety as we as we become more sustainable. And I built I built modular buildings twenty years ago, and so um, and we deal with a lot of companies that do um, uh, construct modular buildings. And I think the government has acknowledged recently this year that uh, modular building probably does sit outside the scope of uh, a normal method of construction and approved document B would be intended to cover. So there is, if you like, an acknowledgement there that it's not expected. I mean, the absence, for example, of any guidance within approved document B to how to implement cavity barriers within the walls, internal wall zones of a modular building uh, doesn't mean that you can't put anything, you're allowed not to put anything in there. I think um, where you find approved document B, doesn't have the guidance you require, I think you should interpret that as being basically that means that approved document B isn't covering your method of construction uh, and you should basically seek to fire engineer that, that building. Um, I think I think Jim's right. I think the insurance um, companies have a big part to play in this. My, my personal view on um, timber, um, probably twofold. Um, I don't agree that building out of timber is going to help the climate. Um, I'm sufficiently dubious about the environmental product declarations I see from timber manufacturers. Um, we, we, we consider ourselves fairly independent um, as a manufacturer. If I wanted to build out a timber frame, I could do it in six months. I could develop a system. We've looked at CLT connections. We make five million brackets a year. We sell 80 million fixings a year. It would be a very um, fruitful market for us, but I choose to build everything out of steel because I believe that that is the future um, of construction. And as an inventor and entrepreneur and so on, what I try to look at these situations in the light of is, uh, what would a futuristic society um, be doing um, you know, thousands of years in the future? And I think making stuff out of fully circular materials powered and recycled both with renewable energy is the future. But when it comes to constructing fire safe buildings out of timber, I think that um, largely, and again, um, the more fires you see around the world, there was another ACM fire in Turkey this week. Um, time and time again, you see these fires destroying buildings and nobody dying. Grenfell is the real outlier in this sense. If you want to look at light steel, uh, sorry, light timber fires in America, condominiums burn down on a weekly basis out there. They don't even make the news. Um, but again, very rare that actually anybody dies. People just get out and stay out and um, they don't hang around to be told to stay put and we will come and rescue you. So, um, I, so I think that it's more of an insurance issue. It's a resilience issue. It's an asset protection issue. And um, the, the point I've made many times about resilience and its, and its connection with fire safety is that, um, yes, high-rise buildings need to be resilient to afford you enough time to get out from the top of that building by definition. But if you've got a two or three story building, uh, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that you can build it out of almost anything and you will still get out alive because the, you just don't only need to be able to jump out the window almost. So, so the correlation between resilience and fire safety and life safety, if you like, varies enormously depending on the height and complexity of the building. So, sure. uh, but that's a fundamental paradox that the government is not going to be able to get away from. If it continues to adhere to this policy of insisting on life safety, as the regulatory standard for construction um, in the UK, then the, the insurance industry is going to have to take the view of, well, we'll have to take a different standard because 
we know that it, uh, for low and medium rise buildings, resilience, um, and which is what they're concerned with, with property and asset protection and the value of their collateral, um, it's, it has no relationship to the life, se life safety for low rise buildings. Didn't, didn't we say that the first question, uh, that, that government should be the, the body to, to regulate for, for building safety? And I think now what you're saying, Jonathan, is that actually it might end up with the insurers anyway to, to do that, particularly in, in larger modern buildings. Ah, but, but don't forget, I, I, I made the point about health and safety. So the health and safety of that occupant living in a three-story flat, they're not going to feel particularly safe if they think that any at any time they could wake up in the middle of the night and their building be on fire. So my argument is that for um, for the health and the mental health, even you know, in terms of interpreting this in the modern sense, the, the health, the mental health of the occupants, the feeling safe and so on, and also the risks that, again, I sit in some, uh, well, one regulatory meeting particularly, I remember a former firefighter saying, we don't need to make buildings non-combustible because the fire services will rescue people. That is the attitude of people that are advising ministers. And and, um, and, I, and you sit there almost incredulously and it's basically, and their attitude is it's for the insurance industry to worry about property resilience and so on. But what you're basically saying is that we're prepared to send our firefighters into a, a risky situation, risking their lives. And again, if you contrast, we mentioned America, if you follow firefighters on Twitter and LinkedIn in America, their attitude to this whole situation is very different. Their attitude is basically, look, if you want to build your condominium out of light, light timber and so on, don't expect the fire services, don't expect us to risk, risk our butts saving, saving your property. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the, the really the, the, the missing element here is that, um, you know, there are people who have formed a view of how buildings should respond to fire. Uh, and it's born of historic materials and historic construction methods. So you buy your apartment, you don't expect it to end up on the ground from a single fire. You expect there to be something to save and recover. You don't expect your apartment to, to uh, be burnt down when someone else's catches fire. But maybe the new norm is that we are entering an era where people need to be a little bit more educated that 100% loss of a building um, is increasingly likely. And with that, we'll drive the demand. It shouldn't be the insurer driving things. It should be the people who are owning and occupying these buildings um, who've probably spent the largest portion of money they'll ever spend on anything in their lives on this. They want to know that their financial you know, investment is secure. That's true, Jim, but overwhelmingly, um, you find when you follow people, the four or five million people on Twitter that live in um, flats that require remediation, there's just gen general um, dismay and disbelief that the building regulations don't afford any property protection. It's, yes. it's completely, um, how can that possibly be the case that there's nothing, you know, a minor electrical fault in a dishwasher can result in the uh, complete burning down of your block of flats and yet somebody turns around and said well everybody got out live so it still met building regulations that's right so these terrible fires we see on tv if there's no life loss could be considered 100 percent success and the buildings might have been compliant and this is a increasing problem certainly for insurers where compliance is absolutely meaningless to them now you know and, and people you know uh, a lot of the effort from designers and architects to go into assuring that the building is compliant and they come with this to the insurance, say, right, insure my building. And they say, you know, not, not a chance. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating discussion, as, as I said earlier, perhaps something that we really should drill down into with, uh, within, with some insurance representatives and, and perhaps some, some 
big building owners um, if we can in the future. Just want to bring us back to, to modular buildings. And Jim, you've been doing some work, uh, I remember in the in the journal, um, uh, reading about your the, the correct use of cavity barriers and developing a test. Um, I know there's still a concern in some parts of the construction industry about the understanding uh, or lack of about fire stopping and cavity barriers and particularly so in in um, maybe in cladding systems also but in particularly so in, in modular buildings um, is it worth elaborating on that just while we're looking at innovative products yes absolutely i mean if we take um we we, we mentioned modular a few times what, what what does that actually mean well it, it means you can be stacking boxes one on top of another uh, of potentially combustible constructions, SIPs panels, light timber framing, um, but it comes in non-combustible forms as well. But around every one of these boxes, um, you know, there's uh, a void created. There's no comfort of a floor slab, um, you know, to stop vertical fire spread that, that, that we might be useful in, that we might be used to in, in concrete and uh, more traditional building types. And all these spaces need to be um, rigorously sealed to prevent the spread of fire, smoke, and toxic products uh, from one place uh, to, to another. Now, <clears throat> we know from the light timber frame experience um, that these sort of out of sight, out of mind uh, devices uh, can be left out, can be moved, uh, can be altered during uh, sort of DIY operations alike. Um, but their fitment, whilst in traditional masonry builds we've always had to fire stop buildings but but how dependent was the safety of the building on them when actually the buildings you, the, the materials you you're building out of a non-combustible um, they're not highly dependent but we've moved to a place now where the construction methods and materials that we're using which are very heavy on the use of uh, combustible materials uh, and introduce a lot of voids that need fire stopping Many of these buildings uh, that we've certainly investigated post-fire, they were only ever compliant within the, the CAD drawing that they were drawn on, such as the level of accuracy required to actually fit them. And they are needed in some weight also. So really for these buildings to ever be compliant, um, they require an awful lot of effort to do a good job, high quality materials, high quality installation, and that for, to be preserved throughout the entire lifetime of the building. If you just go to, to cladding, um, cavi uh, the cavity barriers that prevent vertical fire spread are quite complex devices in their own right, uh, in that they must allow the um, cavity um, behind a rain screen cladding system to vent freely to, to prevent damp uh, in normal operation, but must seal under the action of fire. Now, currently with these cavity barriers, they're not actually assessed for their ability um, to separate the materials uh, in terms of their ignitability and, and, and um, uh, combustibility that they find around them. And this seems like a, a, a strange omission when you have a, clearly a, a, a system that can achieve something, but you could, by putting a lightweight membrane either side of it, um, its closure time may be longer than the uh, ignition time on either side. And you've got to think, what have I actually uh, achieved at the end of the day? So when you put all these things together, whilst the cladding crisis was immense and is immensely problematic, at least all that stuff's on the outside of buildings and it's quite easy to appraise. But with modular construction, it's a complete three-dimensional lattice. 
if done incorrectly, all the voids connecting around every single module, which may be many tiers deep, um, can connect all the way through to the rain screen cladding on the outside. And you may have a very, very porous building if it's not done right. And it will almost certainly be impossible to repair if not done perfectly. It's very difficult to assess. And we may be creating, the if not done correctly now and understood properly, a breed of building on the future that is going to be immensely problematic. And, and referring back to a, a, a discussion we had just, just a few minutes ago, is that regardless of whether we're building a um, sustainable building out of timber or to using steel as the framing system? Yes, I mean, you just have to put it together right uh, and in, a, in the right way that's appropriate to the materials used. Uh, greater resilience obviously comes from using non-combustible materials. Using combustible versions of materials can introduce um, obviously such a, a, a high contributing component to the fire and the toxicity also, which is, again, we need to future-proof. If toxicity does become uh, a, a requirement within our building regulations and a um, but basically another selection criteria for, for, for materials. We need, we need to be appreciating this now. Jonathan, any views on, uh, on, on this? Well, yeah, um, I echo Jim's thoughts on that. I think, um, I would probably extend the, um, 2018 amendment, the combustible ban, if you like, to the party walls of, uh, high rise modular buildings, um, as Jim says, it, once the fire starts in a cavity deep within the structure, um, the fire services really have little option but just to stand and watch it burn down. And of course, this has already happened. We, we have had a complete loss of a modular building in the Shetland Isles. And despite being a stone's throw from an almost limitless supply of water, the fire services could only um, stand and watch Moorfield Hotel burn to the ground, a modular sits building where, with an electrical fault. Now, electrical faults by their nature's tend to start in cavities where you can't get at them. So what are you going to do? Tr chase chase a fire around the building by ripping all, all the plasterboard? Um, it, it's not really going to happen. So again, I think the, um, the insurance industry and when I've been talking to people about mass timber and lightweight timber, um, they don't tend to get very far along the drawing board before the insurers. And, um, and to be honest, just the, just the cost and carbon footprint of actually um, protecting the combustible elements tends to negate any perceived benefit that you might get from sequestration of the, the carbon in the first place. So um, I don't see a really bright future. I think that this is going to go through a phase, a bit like hydrogen, which was seen as the um, solution to all the fossil fuel um, problems in the world. I think uh, when push comes to shove and you look at the economics of it, people realize that actually um, this is not a great way to build. So. Um, steel frame modular buildings, um, I think we see a variety of um, approaches. The, the, the companies that are doing this well, I think, are doing some research and, and are detailing things diligently. But as always in this industry, you only need one unscrupulous company that comes in and blows the budget out of the water and wins the project. And um, they've done it because um, they haven't put enough components in to make it safe. But what they actually do in that is they jeopardise every single building so you can imagine a future where a, a modular building performs poorly under fire uh, maybe a, some of those there are a few of those then there's one that involves a significant significant loss of life and all of a sudden just as we saw with cladding every single building of that construction type 
will basically be locked down, assessed, and in the meantime, no one's going to be able to get a mortgage against it, no one's going to be able to invest to it, no one's going to be able to sell it, and we'll see people locked in. And we are putting a, launching a project currently to really try and investigate how you actually understand whether the fire stopping has been fitted correctly to a building in a minimally invasive way. And that's a very difficult thing to do. But there is a world of pain for potential occupants of these buildings um, should ever, as a building method, it become disgraced through uh, a, maybe, a, as you say, an unscrupulous um, <clears throat> um, contractor um, who really ruins the show for even the good ones. In terms of tolerance of materials, I think it's important to make the distinction between what we're talking about with a modular fire, which might lead to a collapse of the building and so on, um, and something like a cladding fire. Um, purely because of the rate of speed of progress of, of those two fire spread mechanisms. Um, and as I say, I think that the modular cross-laminated timber ACU is more likely to be an, an insurance problem, as Jim says, and related to the problems with financing and residents and so on, because it is going to take hours for that building to ultimately collapse. Whereas with an external fire spread, you can ignite multiple compartments within two or three minutes with a with a very poorly designed facade. So um, so I think in terms of our tolerance from a regulatory point of view, in terms of life safety and, and so on, um, there should be much more draconian measures to pr be prescriptive on extremely fast and highly dangerous um, fire spread mechanisms. Um, and I think there is a, a big onus on the insurance industry to, um, to price out um, dangerous and Right. But, but let's be aware, um, people do view insurance as a right, and it isn't. And government does get us upset and intervene when government, where every time that insurance becomes problematic. We've seen them step into the insurance of schools. We've now seen them step into the provision of PI insurance. And, and generally, these insurers have a problem because there is a problem. Absolutely. Okay, I'm conscious that um, we, we've uh, we're running quickly out of time, and there's there's still a lot I'd really really like to talk talk through. Um, maybe Jonathan, if you mentioned your your podcast still available on YouTube, do you, do you want to um, just kind of pick out some highlights from that for 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 our listeners before we wrap up? Well, I did another um, panel session um, at the RCI show this week and um, uh, somebody asked the question, how many people had read the Building Safety Act? And literally nobody apart from myself put their hands up. Um, and so I would encourage people to do that. Now, the Bu Building Safety Act primary legislation is actually really short. It won't take you more than half an hour to read it, um, but it will scare the hell out of you when you do read it and you, what your obligations and responsibilities moving forward will be whether you're a designer or a property owner or a project manager, main contractor whatsoever. So um, I tried to touch on a few aspects of that, such as liability periods, the duty holder responsibilities um, uh, moving forward, but also, um, also give a general picture because we're so caught up in fire um, and provisions for that. Um, so my wife, for example, is a, a human cell biologist and um, uh, she was very busy during the pandemic and so on. So you can imagine that during the Grenfell inquiry, our after dinner conversations were, were a real hoot combining those two issues. But uh, what she was talking about was very much the impact um, of chemicals that are in, in plastics. And plastics, are, are my, I, I've got mace used with timber construction, 
but very much um, that what we tried to do as an industry national AC, and uh, it, it was meant to give a bit of an insight as well to how we approach the development of our systems and our products. And first and foremost, the question still number one on everybody's lips uh, when they talk about specification for a new project is fire performance. But now very quickly behind that are the environmental issues, um, carbon footprint and so on, but increasingly as well, and microplastics, um, toxicity of materials and so on, the circularity of these materials, and these are all going to um, combine and compound each other in terms of your liability. So the, the next public inquiry we see might not be about um, 72 people being killed in a fire. It might be the fact that you know all of the firefighters that fought, fought that fire have all died 20 years um, earlier. But the gestation period, for instance, the toxicity effects uh, are so long that a bit like asbestos, you know, 30 years of damage can happen in the meantime before you actually get around to solving it. Yeah, I mean, we, we we could talk on these subjects for for hours and hours, and unfortunately, we don't we don't have the the time to do that this this time anyway. Um, Jim, you, any final points, any nuance points you want to get across before we wrap up? Um, well, I, I certainly um, uh, certainly um, the, the 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 test regimes that we have in place are uh, probably of their time and need review. Now that we're sort of looking look, looking forward to a very different future and, and and very different building building methods, I I don't really agree with Jonathan. I'm afraid on uh, that the timber isn't isn't the future. I, I believe it is, and I believe it is something that we we or it's certainly part of it that we do need to uh, address. As, as I say, we, um, but in a form where we we're not eroding overall business resilience. I would like to see. Our standards, which are wholly really performance-based, uh, performance to these quite you know loose and, and general rules of a, maybe evacuation before collapse, I would like to see a minimum level of prescription that no amount of engineering or or value engineering can erode it be, uh, below, um, so that we have a basic expectation of how buildings uh, should perform, and I think that will affect the or should ensure that the best materials are used in the places that they need to be and the perhaps the more combustible um, uh, carbon neutral materials um, uh, are used for it with much greater capacity uh, where they can be. Thanks, Tim. I, I don't like us ending on a disagreement between between you two. Um, we agree on most things. We do agree <laughs> on most things. I think that um, my, my final comment would be uh, overwhelmingly to stick to what you understand. As an engineer, the one, a word we haven't mentioned so far is competency. Uh, I'm very much an advocate of um, the chartered engineering um, process be, being the only realistic uh, way that we can effectively self-regulate as an industry if we build that into the backbone of everything we do. Um, and one of the fundamental principles of being a chartered engineer is knowing your limits and knowing when you're out of your debt. Um, and the analogy, if you like, in investing with Warren Buffett is only invest in things that you understand. Uh, likewise, I would say only build things out of materials and processes and systems that you also understand, because ultimately um, you might have to explain your actions in a court of law. I think that's a, that's a great point to to end on, Jonathan. Thank you. Well, thank you both. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating. Lots and lots more to to pick up on. Jonathan, Jim, thank you very much, and uh, and really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for listening to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. To avoid missing out on future episodes, hit the subscribe button. To listen to previous episodes of Assembly Point or for more guidance and resources on reducing the risks of fire, please visit thefpa.co.uk.